Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. It's an old joke, but when a man argues against two beautiful ladies like this, they're going to have the last word. She spoke, not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. Welcome back to Strict Scrutiny, your podcast about the Supreme Court and the legal culture that surrounds it. We're your host today. I'm Kate Shaw. And I'm Leah Littman. And today we're going to bring you a short episode that is mostly an opportunity for us to debrief and maybe get a little bit of catharsis on the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump that just wrapped yesterday. So we're recording on Sunday morning, and yesterday the Senate voted 57 to 43 to acquit former President Trump on the single count for which he was impeached in the House. That's incitement of insurrection. The Constitution requires a two-thirds supermajority to convict in the Senate, so that'd be 67 votes. Uh, And the House impeachment managers who were prosecuting the case against President Trump fell 10 votes short, uh, although still securing seven Republican votes to convict, uh, pretty significant in that in history, there had only ever been a single vote by a member of the president's own party to convict on any article of impeachment, and that was Mitt Romney who voted to convict on one article the first time President Trump was impeached. Okay, so maybe let's start with some big picture stuff, Leah. What do we think this acquittal means, knowing that we're just a day out from it, and it's going to take a little while for its full meaning to become clear? So a part of me was glad that we got those Republican votes in favor of impeachment. Um, I think the evidence was overwhelming, the danger to the republic clear, that I am glad that it wasn't a vote that was entirely along party lines, but I am still left wondering about whether there was enough accountability to prevent this from happening again in the future and even worse. You know, just looking back on, you know, for example, like white nationalist violence in the aftermath and even precursor of the Civil War, you know, I think historians have written about how the lack of accountability for early acts of violence spawned further additional, more egregious violence. And it's hard to see an ultimate acquittal as real accountability. I think Eric Trump tweeted out after the vote, you know, to nothing, as if this is somehow a great victory for the president and his supporters. So I think that there still remains a lot to be done by way of understanding exactly what happened in the lead up to January 6th and what enabled it and also in holding those responsible for the attack accountable. But there was at least something that came of the impeachment trial. Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think that, you know, in addition to looking to U.S. history, I think that, you know, scholars who study 
you know, the rise of authoritarianism or democratic backsliding globally do point to the fact that it is often the case that a first attempt at attack on democracy is unsuccessful mm-hmm. and that but that, you know, it can create infrastructure and momentum for future successful such efforts. Um, and so I do think that there's something deeply concerning. Um, if you think of this as a first real attack on democracy in you know this modern era, and I don't mean just the January 6th attack, but you know sort of the lead up to it and January 6th as the culmination. So I do agree it's deeply concerning, but I also agree that there is something really significant about the condemnation expressed in the seven Republican votes to convict in an incredibly polarized time in which it has been for four years very difficult to find a lot of voices in the Republican Party that would squarely condemn um, President Trump's conduct uh, and rhetoric. Um, you know, and in terms of impeachments, you know, we haven't had a lot of presidential impeachments, um, and each of them comes to stand for a set of ideas or principles, mm-hmm. right? So Andrew Johnson, the first presidential impeachment in 1868, you know, he comes within one vote of being convicted in the Senate. So he manages to escape conviction, but just by the skin of his teeth. And there's all kinds of questions about whether there was bribery and corruption afoot in one or more of the votes to acquit. But in any event, he gets acquitted. Um, So that's a vindication in some respects. Um, In terms of what it means for Johnson personally, he's very politically wounded by the process and ends up not even securing his party's nomination to run for president later in 1868. So it does very much adversely impact his own political future. And so that's, I think, really significant. And I think kind of helpfully illustrates the point that it's not just a binary conviction or acquittal, and an acquittal is always a complete vindication um, and a victory on the part of the you know, non-convicted president. Um, if we're just talking about presidential impeachments, of course, impeachment can happen for other officials, but what we're interested in here is a presidential impeachment. Um, but in addition to Johnson himself, like what the Johnson impeachment came to mean, I think for a lot of years, it was viewed as something of an error or an overreach on the part of the radical Republicans in Congress who, you know, miss they attempted to overreach to assert, you know, excessive amounts of congressional power at the expense of an appropriate understanding of presidential power, or that it was, you know, about a triviality, right? The main thing for which Johnson was impeached was a violation of a statute called the Tenure of Office Act, which required him to get Senate consent before removing a cabinet official. Um, Later, in a different case, the Supreme Court essentially sides with Johnson that it is unconstitutional to constrain the president's removal power that way. Um, And so all these things, I think, for a long time, um, in part led by a racist school of historians who wanted to vindicate Johnson, who really had been seeking to uphold white supremacy in the South or in the country at large. Um, but so that was the narrative for many years about the Johnson impeachment. But I think that that has come to change. And I think there now Definitely. is an understanding among at least a lot of people that it actually was totally appropriate to seek to use the mechanism of impeachment and removal for Johnson, who posed an existential threat to the future of a real multiracial democracy, and that maybe they framed it in imperfect ways, these, you know, the impeachers, the drafters of the first ever presidential impeachment, but that the purpose was totally proper. Anyway, so it's a long way of making the point that the meaning of an impeachment can change over time. Um, And that also that that sometimes we indulge in these kind of counterfactuals with impeachment. So Nixon resigned before he could be impeached, but there were articles of impeachment that had been approved in the House Judiciary Committee at the time that he resigned. And it's broadly understood that he would have been impeached and removed had he not resigned and foreclosed that possibility. And so the fact of the timing of his resignation is understood not to reflect that you know, he wouldn't, that he wasn't, he's not an impeached president, but that he's a president who would have been impeached and removed had he not left office when he did. So I wonder where, whether there's a way that these events 
in some way stand for a similar idea, potentially, that had he been impeached and tried in the Senate prior to January 20th, he being President, former President Donald Trump, obviously, um, there's a very decent chance that he would have been convicted. And, and, and so I, there I think that both the fact that there were the seven Republican votes and the fact that, so Mitch McConnell, who you know voted to acquit but gave a pretty scathing set of remarks after his vote that made clear he holds President Trump fully responsible for the events of January 6th. Um, you know, had McConnell not decided to sort of, you know, gerrymander the timing such that the trial happened after January 20th, if it had somehow occurred prior to the 20th, would there have been, you know, McConnell and another, could he have brought another nine Republican votes with him so that there would have been the 67 to convict? It seems like there's a very real possibility that that's the case. So one way to understand these events is Donald Trump escaped conviction by virtue of the timing of the trial. That's only one way. And obviously, I don't mean to sort of exculpate Mitch McConnell in this. He made the choice to delay the trial and thus use the timing of the trial as cover to vote to acquit. So none, none of his conduct uh, was laudatory at all here. I just wonder whether there's a way to understand the events in the way I just described. Is that plausible? What do you think? So I am not nearly as optimistic as you all, and I would not say even a sliver of the you know, positive things about the Mitch McConnell speech, given that I think, you know, the real problem is that many people saw this really building up until January 6th. Mitch McConnell did nothing to stop it, including, you know, refusing to acknowledge Joe Biden as a rightful winner of the election, dispelling that narrative and doing anything, you know, to constrain the kind of anti-democracy fervor that was rising. But I think what this impeachment comes to mean is entirely contingent on what happens next and what happens now. Like, will there be, again, like further investigations into what happened in the lead up to January 6th? Will there be actual accountability on any of the people that enabled this? What is the political future of, you know, various people within the Republican Party who participated, you know, in some form or another in propagating this narrative and, you know, allowing January 6th to happen. So I think that what it means is unclear. I am not particularly optimistic, absent, you know, some major refashioning about the electoral structure that, you know, also enabled some of this. Yeah. Um, so, so let's stay for a beat on this question of, so what, what happens next in terms of potential accountability? So there are a few different venues in which that additional accountability or, you know, genuine, genuine accountability might come, right? So one and I'm not sure this is more about kind of the historical record than you know, personal accountability for former President Trump. Um, but one thing that was really clear in this very abbreviated trial was that there is just a ton we don't know yeah. about, even January 6th itself. So Representative Ted Lieu, one of the House managers at one point, you know, said, or no, maybe this was Castro, um, said, like opened his mouth and said, you know, there's a lot we don't know about January 6th. And I, I, I found that like a little bit hard because it was like, well, you guys have made the choice to proceed in this expedited fashion that doesn't involve fact finding or witnesses. We, we will talk about witnesses in a minute. So let's let's put a pin in that. Um, but anyway, the managers themselves conceded there's a lot we don't know, even in the very thorough factual presentation that they gave. And so it just seems really clear there needs to be a very rigorous congressional investigation that involves speaking to witnesses, reviewing documents. There are like many, many knowable facts yes. that I, I think I'm not, I still don't totally understand why they were not run to ground prior to this trial, but just little things like that, that even if privilege and other kinds of obstacles might 
make it difficult to actually get witness testimony from the people who were the senior White House advisors who were around the president who might speak to what he said and did during the minutes and hours of the siege of the Capitol. Um, it's worth pursuing all of that, but there may be obstacles to actually forcing people to provide that information. But on the other side of some of these exchanges, the Department of Defense, you know, this acting Secretary of Defense put out a statement, right, sort of in the middle of this siege. Right indicating that he was calling up the National Guard and had consulted with Vice President Pence and congressional leadership. And of course, everybody noticed the conspicuous absence of President Trump from right. the list of individuals with whom he had spoken. But like, there are records at DOD about what phone calls and conversations yes. happened and who had what. And none of that should be remotely difficult to access. Um, you, you know, you can subpoena any of it. Um, I don't, there are no privilege concern. I mean, I suppose you can make the argument, but I'm not really worried about the argument winning. Um, so I just, that, you know, Secret Service also should be a font of information about what exactly was known to the protective detail around the president and the vice president and when and what communication happened between them. I don't yep. see any real privilege objections there no. either. And certainly no privilege objections about conversations between the president and other members of Congress. Well, it's interesting, like an interbranch privilege like that. I mean, the presidential communications privilege could, in theory, I think, I I'm not sure if it's ever come up in court. I don't think it has as between a member of Congress, certainly with senior White House staff there that you imagine that they would raise presidential. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about anyone within the executive yeah. branch. I just meant, you know, for example, a conversation with a senator or, uh, you know, congressional representative. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And in some ways, you know, could the president try? If those members are willing to speak anyway, I just can't imagine where a privilege objection would even be raised. Um, but it's so so there's just a lot of low hanging fruit in terms yes. of the things they could easily get. I understand they didn't want to litigate some of these difficult witness questions or testimony questions. But but all this to say some kind of serious congressional commission that is charged with right now there are like four different congressional committees that each has inquiries out to various executive branch mm -hmm. entities um and local law enforcement in dc and it just feels like it needs to happen in a coordinated way as opposed to dispersed across a bunch of different committees and it needs to be done you know with seriousness and funds attached to it and on a timeline that is aggressive enough that memories won't fade right like they need to start talking to people now while everyone's memory is fresh mm -hmm. um so anyway so that seems like something really important and i think that like it's important that congressional leadership actually make clear that that is something that they're going to pursue like now um and then of course there's a the question of criminal accountability like where what, what do you think the prospects of you know criminal charges state or federal against former president trump look like right now I don't think there will be federal criminal charges against former President Trump. Um, you know, there are currently right now reportedly state level investigations into the president's attempt to strong arm. You know, we talked about the Georgia Secretary of State into finding additional votes. Um, I, I don't ultimately think that that is going to happen either. Um, and those events, you know, as we said, are not really about January 6th in particular, but instead about the larger narrative. And so I think part of what I would like to see is you know, more digging and a comprehensive report or narrative emerge about how the, you know, quote, big lie about the election being stolen or the existence of voter fraud or, you know, that entire spiel influenced the organization of the rally, the behavior at the rally, the funding of the rally, and so on, because I think that that is really important to understand, like, who bears fault and responsibility for what happened on January 6th. And so we can, again, ensure, try to ensure that this doesn't happen again, because you can say, like, look, last time you were feeding this lie about the election being wrongfully stolen and encouraging people to do X, Y, or Z. This is what happened. And here are the people that did it. I think that that would be really important. Um, 
and so that would be something that I hope happens. Yeah, I, I, I agree with all that. I mean, maybe one thing that we, we should have mentioned when we were talking about further proceedings in Congress is something that has been out there, has been discussed, is actually cited in the Article of Impeachment as a third section of the 14th Amendment, right, which would allow the disqualification for someone who participated in or aided in insurrection from holding future federal office. And, you know, it seems maybe one of the purposes of this commission is to consider you know, the factual predicate for actually, I think you'd probably need to pass a statute specifically identifying President Trump for disqualification um, in order to invoke this provision of the 14th Amendment. So that might be, you know, one purpose that the commission could set out at least to explore. I think that I think that is, is something that I would like to see 14th Amendment conversation not just sort of fall away because we are through with this impeachment process. Um, and, you know, in terms of federal inquiry is, I mean, I wonder whether, I think you're right, federal criminal charges don't seem likely, but I wonder whether, given sort of how much a really deeply disturbing new information about the specific events uh, of January 6th, you know, did emerge, but whether like a Biden Justice Department would at least consider, you know, like a special counsel, like to investigate any sort of senior, sort of senior governmental involvement in the events leading up to January 6th. Like, I wonder, you wouldn't want to do it through ordinary Justice Department channels. I think it seems like the sort of thing that would be appropriate for the appointment of some kind of special counsel. But but I would hope that they at least consider doing something along those lines. Like, it's there's there has been a suggestion of extraordinarily serious, high-level misconduct by government officials, um, and, and, you know, specifically the highest government official. And, and that's, it seems like not to even consider the possibility that the criminal law is implicated would be a mistake even at the end of the day if it if it feels as though criminal charges are just not going to be brought which i do think is probably the result but it just feels like some some serious consideration should be brought to bear on the question um so maybe we can switch now to talking about some of the particular substantive arguments that came up during the impeachment trial so one persistent argument you know that at least superficially uh senators insisted motivated their votes to acquit was this argument about jurisdiction and specifically whether the Senate had the authority to conduct an impeachment trial over someone who was no longer a federal official. Um, That was, as you noted, you know, Senator Mitch McConnell's stated basis for casting a vote to acquit. Um, You know, the Senate as a body took an initial vote on whether they had the authority to try someone who was no longer in federal office and concluded that they did. Um, That is the same outcome that the Senate reached, you know, more than a century ago when they decided the question about whether they had the authority to conduct a trial over former Secretary of War, uh, William Belknap, who was no longer a federal official when the Senate conducted the trial. Um, And I think, you know, Steve Vladek has had a New York Times op-ed, Brian Colt, you know, who has studied impeachment comprehensively, and others have concluded, you know, that text history and you know particularly historical practice and all of the structural reasons why we have the impeachment power would allow the senate to conduct a trial for someone who's no longer in federal office um but the the one point that i wanted to make on this jurisdiction argument and you were alluding to it earlier when you talked about senator mitch mcconnell's gerrymandering um is just that this didn't have to be the case that is the senate didn't necessarily have to try the impeachment proceeding after Donald Trump left office, you know, after the House voted to impeach, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi wanted to transmit the articles to the Senate and have the trial conducted before Joe Biden became president. Senator Mitch McConnell refused that. And so he created the circumstances under which, you know, this argument that the Senate didn't have jurisdiction could exist. um, And there was no real reason 
to do that. Um, it's not like the Senate was, you know, passing major legislation uh, in the final few weeks that he held the gavel. Um, and so, you know, that was just the only thing that I wanted to note about the jurisdictional argument. Totally. And no, I agree. And not only were they not passing major legislation, they weren't even in session, right? right. They recessed and they refused to return until January 19th, the day before inauguration. And that was a choice and and a hugely consequential one. And, you know, and I also think there was, I don't remember exactly how many days, but a number of days lapsed even in the House before they voted on this article. And I do wonder that, you know, they took a brief recess of just a few days, but a recess after uh, starting, I think, on the 7th. Maybe they came back, you know, they, late the night of the 6th after, you know, the Capitol had been secured, they returned, they, you know, finished the counting of the ballots. Yeah. And then I think they were all, like, exhausted and traumatized, and so they, they left for yeah. a few days. And I remember the time being like, what? They cannot leave. They have to respond to this. Right. And I, I think that might have been a really consequential choice. Now, it still would have been a tough timeline oh, sure. to get it done and hold a trial all prior to the 20th. But A, you could have at least started the trial yeah. prior to the 20th, and that might have been meaningful. But B, you know, I, I think it could have been done. And it certainly would have, if they had tried, it, you know, it would have removed this really kind of central argument that McConnell and a lot of other Republicans who voted to acquit rested on, that it was simply a jurisdictional objection, that they were not even reaching the merits right. of the impeachability of the conduct, because at the threshold, they didn't believe they had the authority to do it. Now, I'm saying they didn't believe. This was the stated basis, as you said. I don't actually think in their heart of hearts anybody in the Senate was really moved by the jurisdictional argument. I mean, I, well, who knows? But I, I think it's pretty clear that everybody who's really studied the issue has reached, as you said, the Vladek cult, et cetera, conclusion. And and I do think that very early on, we talked about this before, right? Mike Ludig, a former appeals court yeah. judge from the Fourth Circuit, put, you know, penned an op-ed saying, no, it's unconstitutional to try an ex-official. And it got a ton of press, oh, yeah. a ton of pickup. And and then I, I don't think we've talked like there's he, I listened to him on a podcast debating Keith Whittington, who's also a real scholar of impeachment. And um, Whittington was taking the position again that's very well settled that it's okay to try late impeachments or that it's permissible to do it. And uh, Ludwig was arguing the opposite position. And in the first couple minutes of the debate, you know, Ludwig sort of conceded sheepishly that he first started thinking about the question of impeachment a week earlier, <laughs> one week he had been studying the question for one week. And Whittington, again taking the opposite position, has been studying this for thirty years. And again every Everyone who spent any appreciable amount of time on this question has concluded that that the Senate has has authority here, um, and so it just did not feel like there was any real support um, for this position, and yet it really was sort of the, the basis of. Uh, I mean, it was central to the defense the president mounted, and it was central to the articulated reasons for acquittal that a lot of Republican members gave. Um, okay, so there was the jurisdictional argument. There was a big First Amendment argument that the president's lawyers made, right? So the argument that because at the heart of the impeachment charge was presidential speech, right, in particular spe the speech that he made on the ellipse just before the actual storming of the Capitol, right, when he um, urged his followers to fight like hell or they wouldn't have a country, when he used the term fight 20 times, um, that he said you're never going to take your country back if you don't show strength. Um, and that's because that speech... It's protected by the First Amendment, and it is thus improper to mete out the punishment, as it was repeatedly referred to, uh, of impeachment for speech and speech alone. 
And it's hard to know where to start with why this argument is wrong, right? I mean, I have to say, I actually think, so there are people who think that the First Amendment has you know, no place at all in an impeachment proceeding. And I actually don't. And that the scholar's letter, which is a terrific letter by a bunch of First Amendment scholars, basically takes this position. And I actually think the Constitution and probably all of its provisions, are, you know, many of them, not all of them, in some fashion, its general protections do apply. So due process, for example, you can argue that due process doesn't really have any place in impeachment. And I think that due process principles in some fashion apply. But it is critical to remember that the Senate, you know, isn't in any way bound by judicial doctrine on the First Amendment or anything else when it decides what the Constitution requires in impeachment. So is it is it permissible for the for the for the Senate to say, um, you know, we think that that cert, that that it would be improper to impeach someone because of unpopular political speech because we think the First Amendment principles you know, protect unpopular political speech. I don't think that's like categorically improper for them to sort of think about speech principles in impeachment proceedings. But it's a huge leap to suggest that the like Brandenburg test for incitement, which requires, you know, intent to cause and a likeliness, likelihood of causing imminent lawless action. And just to be clear, that, that that's the test that applies when you're talking about what speech can be criminalized, criminalized and subject right. to criminal prosecution consistent right. with the First Amendment. You could potentially, right. So when we're asking about whether government can take your liberty for the things you say, the bar is very, very high. Um, and to suggest, you know, that that's the standard that has to be satisfied before you can vote to convict in impeachment is just facially preposterous. No one's liberty is at stake when they are facing impeachment. It's literally about, you know, a job loss most of the time, potential disqualification from holding a future set of jobs. That's it. And that's a hugely important piece of the sort of the, the the way we have we incorporated impeachment into our constitutional scheme. It actually was like kind of a bloody business in England and France. People faced serious punishment, including capital punishment following impeachment. And it was very clear when the framers put impeachment in our constitution that they, they sort of domesticated it, right? They said, look, all that's at stake if you're convicted is, you know, again, removal and potential disqualification from future office holding. Um, so these criminal law standards are completely inappropriate if we're talking about the impeachment context. Um, so, you know, so 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 that's argument one. I think really important argument. Another really important argument uh, rejoinder to the suggestion that the First Amendment shields this speech is that even if we were talking about the Brandenburg standard, right. I think there's actually a very good argument that this satisfies it. Right? That actually, you know. Clearly, in context, and context matters hugely in First Amendment analysis, in context, it was clear that this speech was intended to cause and likely to cause this imminent lawless action, this marching on, this storming of the Capitol. Was it intended to cause every lawless act that followed? No, but I don't think that would be required you know, in a judicial proceeding either, right? So that's another set of responses that I think is just really critical. Look, the president's lawyers are just really concerned, Kate, about constitutional cancel culture and canceling the president for trying to cancel the election. You know, can you blame them? <laughs> this, is, this is cancel culture just gone awry. Uh, oh it's gone God. too far, yeah. finally. When you... <laughs> They, they did use the term constitutional cancel culture <laughs> multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and, you know, another set of responses to the First Amendment argument is, is just that, like, look, public officials, you know, face consequences <laughs> for the statements they make all the time. Right. So even if we you like, know, does it violate even, their First Amendment rights to consider their statements in court as to whether they have discriminatory intent? Like no one would say that. Right. Like that's yeah. bonkers. The entire equal protection doctrine and First Amendment doctrine is premised on our being able to consider government officials statements and figuring out what they were intending to do. 
Absolutely. So, right, when we're talking about holding them accountable in court or just there's a million other venues in which this stuff happens routinely. So the Senate is perfectly justified in considering the statements of nominees before it when it is deciding whether to confirm them. And it doesn't violate their First Amendment rights. Except for statements on podcasts and Twitter, just hypothetically. (laughs) (laughs) Or TikTok. Categorically (laughs) off limits. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com. And this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. Guys, it's been a rough year going to get rougher and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet you could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender do your worst but we have a better idea for you which is pick out something from the crooked store the store is stocked with tons of new merch it's perfect for the spring and classics like the friend of the pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship depending on how things go pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year or a hat celebrating your favorite pod go to crooked.com store to shop Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you, and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber-exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Um, but no, right, like, we're, you know, we're accountable for what you say. And, like, that's that's okay. Like, public officials just have to be, you know, comfortable with that. When... Former President Trump fired his cybersecurity official, right, Chris Krebs, Krebs. remember this, for saying, for acknowledging that this was the most, you know, free and fair election in our history. (laughs) So, of course, he said that. That was true. Trump fired him for it. And nobody, you know, uh, people were really upset about that, rightly. But nobody believed that Krebs' First Amendment rights were (laughs) violated by it, right? Like, he lost his job because of the things he said and his boss disagreed with him. That's, you know, I think that it's it's actually quite analogous to what an impeachment proceeding is. Um, And yet, you know, not only did Trump's defense team sort of press these specious First Amendment arguments again and again, they also sought to demonstrate that some of the rhetoric that you know, was at issue from this speech at the Ellipse was sort of roughly similar in totally different contexts to to words or sentences that prominent Democratic officials, most of them women, um, had uttered on other kinds of occasions. I just, I, I loved this because just like their accusations of cancel culture were like epitomizing a meme beyond how it could be memed in parody, this was 
just so peak both sidesism. Like I can find an internet video where a democratic woman of color has said the word fight. And therefore, it, you know, it would be unfair to impeach the president for encouraging an insurrectionist mob to go fight people in Congress and take over the Capitol. It, it, it was everything. It, it just sounds too bizarre to be believed. And literally, that's the argument that they made right. in this heavily edited video that if I'm not mistaken, they played twice start to finish, yeah. or maybe it was two different videos. And I was just like, I can't tell if I've completely lost my mind or if I'm seeing the same video again. Um, and at, at one point, one of the lawyers said, I'm I could play it again, but I'm not going to. And I was just like, oh, thank God. Um, because, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was, you know, yes, primarily women of color in Congress and public office. There was actually, there, there, oh, there was a lot of Elizabeth Warren in there. Too. Yes. Um, and that nasty Clinton. woman. Another nasty oh woman. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, I mean, they sort of, they, they didn't even develop the argument. They just sort of threw up the video <laughs> and seemed to suggest what you are saying, which is that it's, you know, everyone basically it's just like, peak both sides as and people sometimes use the word fight everyone in incites insurrectionist to... mobs to storm the capital okay everybody does right. it and, and also it's not fair you're going to basically pu- you know you're gonna be essentially punishing or subject or, or exposing to punishment every future insider of insurrectionist mobs <laughs> the if slippery you can slope here, argument who would want that the way, exactly. exactly do we want to go down that path <laughs> do we want to open up the possibility of also impeaching other people who every might incite insurrectionist future mobs well-intended insiders of mobs yeah no um also just one final note like if if this was your defense in criminal court, it would be insane. Like I murdered yeah. someone, but also other people murdered someone and therefore you can't hold me accountable. Like no one thinks that's true. Right, right. <laughs> no, right. So the the, the, the crime, it's important to adhere to the letter of the law in like a criminal sense when we're talking about the First Amendment test, but we can do something that would just be facially preposterous in a criminal court, right? Which is to show, though, let's be clear, those videos do not show yeah, no, that no, anyone no, no, no. has ever engaged in right. rhetoric that's in any way analogous to the rhetoric that was at the heart of this impeachment yeah. charge. But even if they had, it wouldn't matter in a criminal proceeding. <laughs> right. Um, but But consistency was not a virtue of the defense team. A um, couple of other arguments that they made, they suggested that the president wasn't given, or the former president wasn't given due process. Um, this is a variation of really dude not. process where boys get to do whatever they would like, <laughs> including inciting insurrectionist mobs to take over the Capitol, and you can't do anything about it because that would be canceling them. Um, no, but but it's just, it's, 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 it's so bizarre because obviously he, he has notice, right? You are watching a hearing playing out in front of you at which his attorneys are arguing for him notice hearing assistance of counsel opportunity to be, be heard right, seeing exactly. he's definitely being heard exactly. yeah no like, that's, that's, is... that's pretty much it right yeah this is the process so it just felt like there were const- there were words that were constitutional were sounding words <laughs> there were due process and so they were thrown in it wasn't even really a developed argument similarly <laughs> The words "bill of attainder" appear in the Constitution, and so those words appeared in the defense. What, 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 what was the argument that this is a bill of attainder? Could you follow it? I, I mean, I think honestly, when they were making their jurisdictional argument, they kept using additional words to make the jurisdictional argument sound legitimate, including due process and bill of attainder, legislative trials to impose criminal punishment on one individual. Generally, not permitted, but what is permitted? are impeachment proceedings of particular federal officials. 
Yeah, it was like, you know, so impeachment is a constitutional process, so that's in there. And it just felt like there was all these moments in the opening argument that already feels like it was like a lifetime ago, but it was like, you know, Tuesday, <laughs> in which it, it seemed as though to the extent it could make sense of um, Bruce Castor's arguments. He was the Trump lawyer who was very prominently um, uh, featured on day one and then was essentially sort of you know, ferreted away and we didn't really see or hear from him again. It was a truly disastrous opening statement. Um, but he kept seeming to suggest that parts of the Constitution violated other parts of the Constitution. Yes. And that, and so I think that the, 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 the impeachment clauses violate the Bill of Attainder prohibition may be what he was trying to argue here, but it was, uh, it was, it, it was, it, the, the, it was hard to, to follow exactly what the argument was. Yeah. Um, okay. So that's, so, so that's sort of the universe of arguments that the president's um, team made. Um, you know, it looked like this was all going to be, you know, the, the, the House managers, the prosecutors um, presented both legal and factual arguments. We'll talk about that, that team in a minute. But it was, you know, it didn't look as though we were going to um, hear from anyone, right, during the impeachment trial. And there was a sort of set of developments on Saturday that looked for a minute as though they were going to change the direction of the proceedings, right? So this was all basically headed for a very quick resolution and vote on Saturday. Um, And then Saturday morning, unexpectedly, the Senate took a vote to consider calling witnesses. And this was brought about largely because a congresswoman from Washington state, um, Congresswoman Herrera Butler, um, put out a statement that was consistent with things that she had actually previously said, but that had a little bit flown under the radar. She said them to a paper in her hometown and in a constituent town hall, um, but you know, provided some new information about Kevin McCarthy's phone call with Donald Trump, um, in which it seemed as though you know they, they were really pretty damning statements from President Trump. Kevin McCarthy essentially pleading with him as individuals like banged on and at one point I think broke office windows. Um, McCarthy asking Trump to call off. The mob. Trump initially saying they're not my people. McCarthy saying no, that they're wearing your hats and your flag. That these are your people. You need to call them off. And Trump responding along the lines of, "Well, maybe Kevin, they're just a little bit more upset about elect about the election than you are, or maybe about election fraud than you are." I'm essentially seeming to say, like, "Good, I'm glad." Right. Um, and so that's really serious evidence. Um, you know what I hear? Senator Elizabeth Warren has used the word "upset" before Kate. So is that is that a big deal? Is that I, I, I'm I not think sure. Think of the highlight reels that you could watch. Right. Other people saying upset in totally different contexts. <laughs> um, so they got the vote to actually debate. It was a little bit unclear. At one point, a member of the Senate said, wait, hang on, what, are, what did we just vote on? And I was glad I was not the only one who was confused because it was a confusing vote. I don't think Pat Leahy, who was presiding, was perfectly clear on some of these procedural points either. Um, but anyway, it they, they took the vote to consider calling witnesses, recess for a few hours, and I don't think anybody really knows what exactly transpired during those few hours, but when they returned, there was a stipulation to enter into evidence Herrera Butler's statement, uh, but essentially an agreement to move on to closing arguments and not call witnesses. And that did feel... Yeah, like during the period of uncertainty, it was very unclear like whether they would be calling witnesses. And you had, you know, some Republican commentators suggesting they were going to call Nancy Pelosi, Vice President Harris, and so on. And, you know, there was like real, like some combination of excitement, fear, and just no one knew like what was going to happen if they were going to be calling witnesses. And then it all sort of came crashing down. Um, And, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to why this extremely talented team of impeachment managers, we'll talk about them in just a minute, made the judgment that they made not to press the issue of calling witnesses. Um, 
I, I have to imagine that they had been given reason to believe that they would jeopardize some of the Republican votes, and not that there would be, a, I don't think, a principled basis, if you're a Republican who thinks that we, that conviction is yeah. appropriate, to, to sort of, you know, threaten to withhold that vote on the basis of witness testimony that you haven't even heard yet. Like, I mean, it's just hard for me to construct a principled um, exchange between an impeachment manager and a senator leaning convict that sort of follows that script, but I just don't otherwise know. I think it was really important knowing how hard it was going to be to get to 67, knowing how long the witness fights would likely uh, drag out in terms of at least some of the witnesses and sort of with the possibility of actually losing as opposed to gaining some votes, I, I can I can, I can well understand reaching the decision that it was better to just press ahead with the closing arguments, but it did feel like maybe there was a lot of important information that the public could yes. get. I mean, that's, we talked about this commission and what's so, what, what one thing that is, I think we have to acknowledge is there is just an unusually public dimension of an impeachment trial. And so presenting evidence in this setting, when you actually have like networks doing wall-to-wall coverage and people following it so closely, is just going to land really differently with the public than even a really rigorous and careful congressional investigation that results in some, you know, 500 page report two years from now. Right. You know? Exactly. Like two audiences, one possible audience is the jury the senate but another very important audience is the american people witnesses might have you know been helpful to one audience even if not the other um but you know we will never know and you know it's also been reported i think the new york times suggested that senator joni ernst um you know or at least other republican senators were saying well if you go ahead with witnesses we are basically going to stonewall and prevent you from enacting any legislation or you know move your nominees forward um you know other there were also concerns floated that maybe this is a way to like help joe biden get his agenda you know move forward stop the senate trial um you know i think that honestly like one hard question that emerges from this trial and like that reporting is well what should the senate and administration be pushing for vis-a-vis the filibuster and like their ideas about governing like given that this trial only resulted in 57 votes like which is not a filibuster proof majority to get legislation passed and you know and we've talked about you know the extent of evidence and like the existential threat to democracy you know what do you do now knowing that um and especially knowing that they were holding this threat to attempt to block nominees and block all legislation yeah that's a great point the difference between 57 and 60 is actually you know it's it's you know it's it's not not that you could even necessarily get a lot of these votes on no policy no issues anyway but yes i would hope that if anything, this just sort of, you know, further, you know, raises the urgency of, of considering filibuster reform. I, I, I totally agree. Um, okay, so so let's talk for just a couple of minutes about the impeachment managers, right? So those are the House members who serve basically as prosecutors mm-hmm. in the Senate trial. Um, and it was a team led by Maryland Congressman and former law professor Jamie Raskin. Um, and I think that I mean, I thought that he was absolutely superb in this trial. Um, He was conducting it, right, leading this team under unimaginably difficult circumstances. So he, on New Year's Eve, lost a child to suicide. He had buried him, that child, the day before the January 6th attack. He was with one of his other children in the Capitol, you know, feared for their lives uh, while this happened, and then, you know, undertook this role of leading this team of managers to sort of put together and then present this trial uh, before the Senate. Um, and he was just superb. Um, he is, you know, he's a law professor, taught constitutional law for something like 30 years. Um, and uh, so his, you know, command of the Constitution and the law was really masterful. Um, but he was also not 
professorial at all. Like, I mean, he was, I think, only professorial in the best way. Like, he wasn't pedantic at all. He was very accessible. He talked about the Constitution and case law. And there were a couple of really good flexes. Like, so the president's team a few point a few times suggested he was misrepresenting Bond versus Floyd, a case in which um, Julian Bond, who had been elected to the Georgia legislature, was initially denied the ability to take his seat um, based on criticisms that he and SNCC, um, of which he was a member, uh, had made of the Vietnam War. And he won a First Amendment challenge and was you know, able to take his seat in the legislature. And it was just like, not only does Raskin know the case inside and out, he knew Bond very well. And he was just like, he was a little bit like, no, no, you're not going to school me on the meaning of Bond versus Floyd. And there were a few other moments like that. But mostly he was just like, I, th- I thought, I don't know what the American public thought, but I just thought he like did law professors incredibly proud. Like he just was a credit to our profession. And, you know, and also not all law professors, I think are good trial lawyers. Like I would, I don't think do a good job of anything along these lines, but he was like an incredibly effective trial lawyer. That's what he was prosecuting a trial and he did a terrific job. Yeah, no, I think, you know, he did a service to the profession. He did a service to the country. Um, I cannot imagine, you know, conducting the impeachment trial under those circumstances, but he was spectacular. He was. And then America got to really like get to know a bunch of other members of Congress, mm-hmm. some of whom, you know, are new to the body or low profile and people probably hadn't been exposed to before. And it was just like an incredibly talented, brilliant bunch. Um, so Representative Joe Nagoose um, from Colorado, I thought was really special. Like he is 36 years old. Yeah. Um, he's a lawyer, of course, and a, an incredibly smart guy. Um, so so there's this moment when he started, he sort of reached back into the mid 80s, right? So he he talked about a lot of things that the Senate as a body had accomplished. And he talked about the Voting Rights Act. He talked about passage of the 13th Amendment. Um, but then he, he, he pulled a moment from Senate history from 1986 out. And he said, you know, in 1986, the Senate voted to override President Reagan's veto of sanctions legislation against apartheid South Africa. Um, and he said there were, you know, two members still in the Senate who voted to override the veto, right? Voted in favor of the sanctions that Reagan had vetoed. And in one case, like against his party and potentially a great political cost. And he didn't name the senators and he just let it out there. He sort of said, you know, I know this body can do great things. And it was a young or youngish Mitch McConnell who had cast that vote. And it was just such a deft reminder that like maybe somewhere in Mitch McConnell is like a kernel of principle. And he seemed to be like reaching for it in a way that like this young congressman like it was just like such a masterful display actually this whole like eight minutes the second half of his closing remarks yesterday i would say are so worth watching but i was just like i don't even i have no idea what he's talking about and then i got on the internet and it was like oh yeah right this is the whole, this whole thing was like an it, just a very um smart pitch to mitch mcconnell unsuccessful ultimately but just like i think a demonstration of just like what a special mind this young congressman has so he really blew me away we also got to know better and see representative stacy plaskett um who as a former prosecutor really brought a lot of trial skills to the impeachment proceedings um, and she had put together or was in charge of narrating and explaining to the body like you know, footage of the events um, of January 6th and kind of constructing the narrative. And I think she just did a superb job on that and many other things as well. She's really, really talented. Yeah, I, I loved getting to to watch her. Um, the rest of the team was really impressive as well. So, so I do think that, you know, to the extent that for a lot of people, it felt like a day, it felt like a week um, that 
was really disheartening from the perspective of our institutions and of Congress in particular. It's like there are actually a lot of extremely smart and principled and thoughtful people in that body. And um, and some of them, like you just have never been exposed to before. So I actually thought that was one really kind of silver lining of the week, actually. So did we feel the same way about Trump's defense team? <laughs> Um, so we had the a lawyer who referred to Philly Delphia, <laughs> you know, on top of all the references to uh, due process and bills of attainder. Uh, no, uh, did not so much feel the same about Trump's lawyers, uh, Bruce Castor, David Schoen, James Vanderveen, uh, not not maybe the best people or in uh, George Blue Sr.'s words, I have the worst fucking attorneys. <laughs> I feel like that meme got appropriately a lot of play. Yes, last it did. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, it was a struggle clearly for the former president to find lawyers willing to defend him in these proceedings. Um, these are the three who agreed to do it. Um, you know, Caster's rambling opening we talked about made very little sense. Um, uh, Vanderveen mostly fielded the questions during the question and answer session, and he was actually deeply offensive yes. at a number of points. Yes. Um, he, he, um, he was rude. He was dismissive. There was one, I think, really important question from Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski about, you know, really pressing the defense team on when the president knew the vice president was in danger and what he did to stop it. And Vanderveen's dismissive kind of contemptuous answer was to, to cite it a tweet, like one tweet, and then to attack the house managers yeah. for having failed to get that information from their own client um and there was just like a number of moments like this in which they were the Vanderbeen in particular was rude and dismissive and that you know the closing that Raskin gave yesterday Saturday it was just like you know like it was it seemed to sort of speak to the ages he spoke again about his family um he you know appealed to the senate the senator's love for the constitution he ended godspeed to the Senate, um, and then just sort of sat down and sort of said, you know, kind of history is going to speak. And then Vanderveen got up, and it was just like this incredibly classless response in which he said, you know, basically I need to first start by cleaning up the mess of the manager's closing. Like, it was just so disrespectful. Yeah. Um, and then started to take issue with some of the factual representations and then went on to make tons of factual claims. I think, again, raising the possibility that they were riders from the left and the yes, right involved yes. in the January 6th attack yeah. in the closing. And the managers, I think, just showed remarkable restraint in not getting up to object to these baseless yes. claims that were not in the record, although part of me wished they had done so, you know. Um, anyway, it was um, – and then Raskin did get up and, and, and give one final short rebuttal, but again, was very restrained and, and did not take much time uh, doing it. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder whether – it made me think a little bit about um, – Previous strict scrutiny guest and, you know, our, one of our legal idols, Sherilyn Eiffel, had a terrific piece, I thought, in The Times about the role of lawyers in the Trump yep. administration last week. And and, and, I, and I wonder whether, um, you know, it, it's I, I think it's a complicated story, sort of the story of how our profession has performed. And I think maybe we just touch on it today. Maybe we come back to it because I think we want to wrap soon. Um, but, you know, she's arguing that lawyers enabled Trump's worst abuses. And, you know, so the, so the piece ran last week, so before the trial was done. But, you know, many of her points were very much on display in this trial. Um, and, I, and I think that, you know, when we think about the story of the last few months, sort of putting aside the four years of the Trump administration for a minute, um, 
it's in some ways part of the story is that the law served as a bulwark uh, and the court served as a bulwark against these attempted um, anti-democratic moves that the courts were you know pretty uniform in smacking down the former president's efforts um, to press you know baseless fraud claims or frivolous legal arguments um, and so this idea that the courts actually did hold um, and so you know our institutions are strong and that's one big takeaway I think I think the courts actually performed quite well in that I don't want to discount the importance of that but I also think that they were only in a position of even answering these questions <laughs> because lawyers were willing to take these arguments yeah. to court and so it's important to focus on that too and it seems to me that that's what Sherilyn's focusing on and and you know these lawyers were making the arguments that were then ultimately successful um, and And I think that it's true that our profession has to reckon with that as well. Yeah, and it's not just the lawyers who are making these arguments that courts rejected, but also it was lawyers, and Sherilyn talks about this in her piece, who made the arguments that fed into the big lie, namely the extent and problem of voter fraud. And, you know, now that's animating a bunch of, you know, proposed restrictions on voting, but that was also partially behind the big lie narrative as well. Um, And so that's part of, you know, the accounting that she's calling for. Yeah. Uh, I think that maybe this is a topic we should – she, she seemed open to coming back and doing a return visit to strict scrutiny, so maybe we should try to get her to come in and talk about this. Yes, we love that. Um, Sherilyn, if you're listening, just let us know when, <laughs> anytime. Um, so okay, so someone else as... who we're hoping to have on the podcast because they might have some extra time on their hands. Um... Oh, you're so good at segues, Leah. <laughs> <laughs> who is that? Uh, maybe you should ask this question, Kate. <laughs> Will Steve Breyer soon have a lot of time on his calendar? It seems like, and if not, this why? <laughs> if not, why not? So, this I just feel like mid-February is a good time to make this kind of announcement. I mean, Happy Valentine's Day, America! <laughs> <laughs> I love you. I love democracy. <laughs> I mean, look. I think that our listeners know this. We are. We love and respect our fellow Cassandra, yes. Steve Breyer. None of this has anything to no. do with wanting him out nope. of the court in any way. But it is, as we have said many times, like it is a very precarious Democratic majority in the Senate. Thing, things can change or happen fast. There is still a raging pandemic. I think all the senators have hopefully now had their second shot, but I'm not sure. Um, and... It just feels like waiting until the end of the term, which I understand the instinct to do, is just too long, right? I think that he should at least start talking to the White House. Now, maybe he has. I don't know. Um, But I think that he should send a letter to the White House this week and then maybe announce it publicly a couple weeks from now so that hearings can happen. And he can make his announcement, as Sandra Day O'Connor did, contingent contingent on the confirmation of his successor. I think he should do that. Um, But I truly think that that yes, this is the Valentine's Day gift America needs and Steve Breyer don't let us down. Yeah, um, the one thing I would just add to that is we have seen two, I think, cases in recent times where his vote was actually necessary to the outcome. You know, one in Salinas versus Railroad Retirement Board about the reviewability of past denials of employee benefits. And then also more recently, the stay on execution um, that that the court gave to uh, Willie Smith. Um, on religious liberty grounds. 
And it is possible that there are other such cases where his vote is necessary to the outcome. You know, one honestly might be the Affordable Care Act uh, case on severability. You know, another might be Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, although I think that's going the other way. Um, But, you know, I don't think that that prevents him from saying, you know, I announce my retirement upon the confirmation of a successor, given the lag time that is built in with meetings with senators as well as confirmation hearings. Yeah, totally agree. Um, All right. So let's leave it there. Okay. So thanks, everyone, to listening to our SNAP episode on the impeachment proceedings. Thanks so much to Catherine Fink for substitute producing this episode. If you'd like to support the show, you can become a Glow subscriber at glow.fm forward slash strict scrutiny. And if for some reason you're on TikTok, uh, we are also recently on TikTok at strict scrutiny podcast. So Join us for some briar memes, some impeachment shticks, and other things too. <laughs>